Coming up, an IPR radio drama retrospective. A live radio drama in a small community like Muncie, I think that's really special and unique. But you've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like if you'd never been born. We look forward to going in and getting our seats and holding our breath and not sneezing and watching the timer and watching the applause light. It's really an event for us every year. We're actually not performing it for them, we're performing it with them. And they are, in essence, performing it for the, the, the audience that sits at home and listens on the radio. Community members were getting to know students, and students were getting to know community members, and there was a whole, just a host of friendships. I realized how sweet and how fun and how rich this could be as an experience for the performers and artists and producers, and also for the audience. <laughs> Place of birth, North Pole, now really. Comfort and Joy, an IPR radio drama retrospective, is presented by Lifestream Services, with additional support from Mark's Service Center and the Yorktown Public Library. From Ball State University, this is Indiana Public Radio, 92.1 WBST Muncie, 89.5 WBSB Anderson, 90.9 WBSW Marion, and the lovely 91.1 WBSH Hagerstown, Newcastle. Tonight... Our story takes place in that magical hour between Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. Tis the season to be That's your plan? Yeah! You and me and a few more of us, we'd own the world! I see. Yes! Why? He had to sell the old one when we lost the apartment. I just know this would make him happy. <laughs> George, where are you going? Out to talk to those people, come on! Our father just stood there. Barely moving. Barely breathing. Would he be captured? Would he be shot? But then... One of the Germans climbed out of the trench. What day is it, my fine fellow? Today? Why? It's Christmas Day! <laughs> It's Christmas Day! Then I haven't missed it! All State PBS and Indiana Public Radio present Comfort and Joy, an IPR radio drama retrospective. Featuring Vanessa Ament. Jennifer Blackmer, Brian Boswell, Nancy Carlson, Michael Elliott, Chris Fluke, Marcus Jackman, Michael Kleberg, David Taylor Little, and Matthew Reeder. Hosted by Michelle Kinsey. Produced and directed by Paul Brown. Executive producers Angie Rapp and Lori Georgie. Hi, I'm Michelle Kinsey, your host for the celebration of one of my favorite holiday traditions, the IPR radio drama. My first IPR radio drama was in 2012. I was Mrs. Hatch in It's a Wonderful Life. It was only a few lines, but I was hooked. Tell Mary to get on the extension upstairs. He says to get on the extension upstairs. I can't, mother's on the extension. I am not. I've been a voice actor for every show since then. For 12 years now, the IPR radio drama has brought together students and faculty from the Ball State campus and community members of all ages from across East Central Indiana. 
audience members watch the live performance on campus, tune in on their radios, watch it on Ball State PBS, or listen online anywhere in the world. Tonight, we'll take a look back at how this holiday tradition developed and became such a uniquely special event in our community. If you've enjoyed IPR radio dramas before, you might recognize a few of the voices you're going to hear. So grab a tasty beverage, gather your loved ones, and enjoy this IPR radio drama retrospective. Like many good stories, this story starts with a legend, one that circulated for years in the telecommunications department at Ball State. And this led to the very first IPR radio drama, a recreation of War of the Worlds, performed on the 70th anniversary of the famous original broadcast. Here's Nancy Carlson, former associate professor of telecommunications at Ball State. There was a legend in TCOM that the very first professor, Dr. William Tomlinson, had an original script of the War of the Worlds from 1938. They called it the Panic Broadcast of 1938. And that, that myth went on and on for over 20 years while I was a teacher there. So that started us thinking. And Brian Boswell was a graduate student in the telecommunications department at that time. And as collaboration happens, we got to talking, probably in the lounge, and we said, you know, coming up is the 70th anniversary of War of the Worlds, famous panic broadcast. Why don't we go talk to the good people at Indiana Public Radio and see if we can recreate it? Uh, I was part of the original team when we began the radio dramas. Uh, it was an idea that Brian Boswell, who had come up with me actually as student announcers at the same time, uh, Brian Boswell brought to me and uh, his passion was infectious and his vision was catching. Here's a TCOM professor and her graduate student coming up with kind of a cockamamie idea that's based on a myth from many years ago in TCOM that somebody actually had a script of this and so it's floated through TCOM and I knew the people at Indiana Public Radio and had volunteered there for fundraising but I didn't know if they would say yes and lo and behold in the room were people from the symphony people from the school of music people from the theater people from radio people from television and everybody said Yes, we can make that happen, and that's exactly the way you get new things done. When the idea was suggested, and yes, it was maybe a little risky, or maybe it was a little bizarre, and maybe it wasn't certain about whether or not it would come off, I had faith in a couple of things. I had faith in the, the competency and the professionalism of the people that brought the idea, and their ability and their passion, and I also had faith in my audience. I had faith that they knew we were not just there to find the finest angle to get by and, and, and do our mission and be a successful enterprise, but they knew that we wanted to be ready to meet them in ways that were personal and direct. And this was an opportunity for that. And even if it had not gone as well as it did, and it went well, it was exciting even if it had not gone well, I knew that my audience would have believed in the failure. But the generosity of heart and spirit that, that members and donors uh, show a, a couple 
or 12 times a year is an ongoing testimony. We believe in you. I don't need everything to go right. And we, we, we made that first uh, radio broadcast kind of, kind of slapdash um, as we were figuring out what we needed to learn while we were figuring out and learning it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Someone's trawling out of the hollow top. Someone or something. Nancy Carlson became the producer for the broadcast and Brian Boswell stepped into the role of director. So it was my first time directing a radio drama. It was really fascinating for me. One of my loves is classic radio. And so um, I, I didn't know where to start exactly. So um, we uh, ran rehearsals. Everyone was great to work with. It was amazing. Everyone just had this passion for it. Most of them coming from either, you know, theater or, uh, or radio world themselves. We had an all-star cast of Muncie, many not affiliated with Ball State, and several rehearsals. And then for the first time, we did live sound effects, which are the only way they used to be, where they would actually clang cymbals together or open squeaking doors or make footsteps. Now the whole field's caught fire. The woods, the barns. The whole idea took a few months. In fact, the timeline from auditions to the live performance was less than a month, with only a cast read-through, a rehearsal with sound effects, and a dress rehearsal the night before the show. Here's Marcus Jackman. While it might look easy on paper to say, well, we'll have the sound of, of, of shoes on a, on a wooden plank. George, on your way out, would you mind turning off the phonograph? To mimic the sound of, a, of somebody walking across the room or find a little miniature door. Yeah, I'm out here on the porch, Mother. Just thought I'd get some air. Well. And, and close the door, and it'll sound like a door. And it sounds like it's going to be very simple. But one of the lessons learned was there was a lot of craft and a lot of professionalism and a lot of talent that had been going into these radio dramas from years and years past. And we could recreate that, but it, there were not as many shortcuts as you might have imagined. No one knew how many audience members to expect at the live performance, so the next question was, where do we perform this? Early in the process, Brian Boswell was thinking it might happen in one of the IPR studios. We eventually just kind of started getting the feel for everything and thought we could um, maybe attract a bit of a, an audience. And so uh, working with uh, Indiana Public Radio, we actually did it there in Pruce Hall. Uh, got a very large, good-sized audience, and we were very into it. The exciting thing was the back timing. It had to work perfectly within the hour on Indiana Public Radio. So the show was back timed so that we knew exactly 10, 9, 8, when to be quiet, when to start. And then as the show took breaks and ended, we also had to know exactly how many seconds are left for it to fill that hole, that broadcasting hole. We were told to clap with an applause sign, which was really fun because that's so old school. We had all these, you know, parts working together and on a live show that's that big, at least to me at the time, it seemed really, really big. Um, yeah, I was very nervous and we started right on time and we ended up uh, within, I believe, 30 seconds of the end of the show and we had all these things set up. What if we go late? What if we go early? Uh, we, we ended up, you know, almost right on time. Marcus Jackman was cast in the role of announcer one. After the show, audience members approached him. 
What did they think? I remember several people in that audience, not just coming up and saying, hey, nice show, but people who came up to express almost breathlessly how much did it, how sweet it had been for them and how much it had meant to them and how they felt taken back uh, to a different era. That, that response started me understanding what we were doing, that we were touching their hearts by passing the eye, going in through the ear, right to their heart, into their childhood and finding things that were, that were golden for them. Brian Boswell and Nancy Carlson also felt the love after the performance. I got all kinds of um, warm responses from, from people who had seen it. Um, a lot of people said, wow, they were inspired and they wanted to do something like that. The people loved it and in my file, I have a couple thank you letters that came in by November 1st or 2nd saying that was a great experience. One of Nancy's colleagues, Chris Fluke, helped bring the radio drama to the local television audience on WIPB-TV, now Ball State PBS. So my first radio drama was with War of the Worlds with Nancy Carlson. I found a long time ago not to ever refuse Nancy <laughs> on anything for many reasons, but most, mostly because Nancy does not get involved with dumb projects. So everything she gets involved with is usually pretty exciting. Uh, it was one of my first years here teaching at Ball State, and I got a group of students together, and we, we did all the video side of things. Um, and then I animated the opening sequence. Um, and from that end, of it, the first time that I did that, I was teaching a lot of motion graphics classes. I still do, and I thought it'd be a great way to take a project from beginning to end and then just show my students how to do it and base tutorials out of it, and it worked very well allowing me to help contribute to the whole thing, but then create all this other stuff for the classroom. Even with all the work Chris put into the opening credits animation and the video recording, he saw the television broadcast as a compliment, not a replacement for the radio broadcast. It's meant to, to sound great. And so if you close your eyes, you get that kind of experience. But seeing things behind the scenes, seeing how the actors and actresses perform, on stage, uh, being in character in terms of dress, the uh, sound effects, the Foley work that's being done is pretty amazing. Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? And you don't get any sense of that if you're not actually watching it. And so I think the video side of things is helps to extend that experience for the audience. And then the fact that it's not that part is not done live, so. Even if you're listening to it live the day it broadcasts, or even if you're in the audience, they usually run it on Christmas Day or whatever, you're able to go back and see that experience sort of behind the scenes, even though it's not exactly behind the scenes. Now, let's go back before the performance, before the rehearsals, and before the auditions even, when Marcus Jackman gathered people from across campus to plan this anniversary recreation of War of the Worlds. Everyone in the room thought this would be a one-time event, but suddenly Marcus began to realize this might just be worth another try. We rebroadcast the Panic broadcast the next year also, our recreation of it as a, just a, a continued celebration. And we, we remembered the, the enthusiasm of the, uh, the participants and we reached out to let them know, hey, we're gonna rebroadcast this. Uh, and their enthusiasm had not really waned much at all. I think that was when it started uh, churning in my mind, we could do this every year. This 
this outreach event is something that can be sustaining. I've seen productions at Muncie Civic. I, I was an arts reporter for years. I know there are other theatrical groups. I know there are musicians all over this listening area. It's not just something that happens in the big brick buildings on Ball State campus. It's happening all over. Maybe there is even more than I dreamed. The second radio drama was performed in December 2009, and it came with a very significant change. A Christmas Carol was chosen as the story, and the IPR radio drama has been a holiday tradition ever since. For Marcus Jackman, this second radio drama was also an opportunity to expand the production to a broader group of participants than the first time around. By and large, it seemed to be largely a, a Ball State community thing, just because we were throwing it together uh, in a pretty short order. But when the community showed up, and embraced this idea and, and showed their enthusiasm. It, it made me understand this must be, and it can be something much wider. And so when we began moving from there, opened up the auditions uh, officially to, to the whole community, invited people to come in, uh, and we started pulling voices and pulling names and pulling faces from all around the IPR listening area. It was so exciting to know not just there are these talented people, but that they all want to take part in crafting this story. That was the show where I realized how sweet and how fun and how rich this could be as an experience for the performers and artists and producers and also for the audience. I loved seeing that cast come together uh, when I was, I remember sitting uh, side by side with Ben Lancaster, the director on the casting nights. Um, and I'd never been on that side of the casting table. It was very empowering. But I remember when Todd Terrell came in and read for Scrooge. And I think we tried to keep a poker face. And then Todd left and Ben and I looked at each other and said, okay, uh, we have our Scrooge. And it wasn't just, I think we've got him, but it was exciting. After a two-year hiatus, the IPR radio drama continued in 2012 with a production of It's a Wonderful Life, with Ben Lancaster stepping in again to produce and direct the show. Marcus Jackman continued in his role of executive producer, but this time he was also helping with the live sound effects. Seeing Ben especially take what, what Brian had begun and to see Ben take that to become an amazing, theatrically richer in, uh, experience for all of us, that was, a, it was an amazing privilege. It was exciting for me to do uh, sound effects as well, uh, to be the Foley artist, uh, to run the big wind machine. It was folded up in that newspaper he gave to old man Potter. Those first two shows that we did immediately after War of the Worlds, where I got to be part of that process from beginning to end as executive producer, those were, those were sweet and exciting. Chris Fluke returned to produce the TV broadcast and the opening animation for It's a Wonderful Life. And he's continued to work his broadcast magic each year. He begins planning for the opening animation in October when he receives the title, the storyline, and the script for the upcoming production. Now what I try to do is to take whatever is presented in the story, whatever the main concepts are, or what the actual story like beat points are, and then find imagery that matches that, and then tell sort of like an overture of that story or having a lot of sim symbolism of what's within that story 
um, and then just presenting that on screen, really as a place to enter, be entertaining to start the entire broadcast, but then also as a place to put the credits. You have to have both the technical skill to be able to work in the graphics, but then a sense of art or style to, to be able to make it look good. And so it's a, it's a great way, a great entry point for students to be able to understand how that process works that can be used for documentaries, used for sports, lots of other things. So there's a technical side and then a creative side. Well, Chris definitely has the technical skill and the creative skill because his IPR radio drama animations have won him four regional Emmys so far. I'm always very proud of it because it just, I think to me, just validates the quality of the stuff that's put into it, but also gives further recognition for the, for the radio drama that we are recognized for it outside of, you know, Muncie and the folks in East Central Indiana. In 2013, the holiday radio drama was preparing for its fourth production, Miracle on 34th Street. But a new director was needed. And wow, did Marcus Jackman find a good one in Jennifer Blackmer, a professor in the Department of Theater and Dance at Ball State. She also happened to be a huge public radio fan. She'd become an IPR listener and member right after she moved here from Minnesota. Of course, the first thing I do when I come down uh, to Muncie is I'm like, all right, what's the public radio station? And I found IPR, of course. And so the, the morning edition, all things considered, Stan Sollers, um, um, and at that point it was uh, Marcus Jackman in the afternoon. During the summer of 2013, Jennifer met with Marcus to talk about that year's radio drama. He talked to me about places in the community that we could go for uh, auditions and such. And I asked him, I said, well, is it okay if I publicize this with our students? And he's like, absolutely, would they be interested? And I was like, heck yeah, because um, radio drama, voice work is something that we study with our students, but they don't really have the opportunity to sort of do it in, in full production. So we put out a call for auditions in the community as well as uh, with our students and the turnout was, was insane. It was wonderful. So we did two nights of open auditions and had this, this wealth of riches of, of people to choose from. And so our first cast was a large one and it was a combination of community members and students. And the feeling was just superb. I mean, <laughs> from start to finish, not only were we creating a, an amazing piece and telling a wonderful story, but community members were getting to know students and students were getting to know community members and there was a whole, uh, just a host of friendships that were formed in that particular process as well. So it was, it was great from, from just from start to finish. One of those community members in the cast was Michael Kleber. Is Chris Kringle crazy? Court case coming. Kitty's cry calamity. <laughs> Who was already familiar to fans of Muncie Civic Theater. It's been almost 30 years that I've been doing local theater, and I had heard of the Christmas broadcast, but I didn't know anything about it. And somebody told me that they were auditioning for Miracle on 34th Street, which is one of my favorite stories. And I thought, well, I'll just have to go over there and see what's going on. And Jen Blackmer was the director, and Jen has directed me a couple of times, so I already knew it was going to be a good experience no matter what happened. And 
I auditioned. I read a couple of sides, and uh, they cast me as Chris Kringle. And uh, I got to wear my Santa Claus cap during the broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a difficult one. Like, who was Miracle on 34th Street marked a transition for Marcus Jackman and for the IPR radio drama as a whole. Miracle was my last show um, with Jen Blackmer. And that, was a, that, was, that felt clearly like we were handing off to someone who, was, uh, who, who knew not just what they were doing, but knew how they wanted to do it uh, and had an energy and a focus and a vision that was, again, going to take us another quantum leap forward. It was a marvelous opportunity for me to create a world just through sound and just through language. And as a director, I've always been very um, sort of visually stylized in the work that I do on stage. And in this instance, I didn't have that, right? So I was able to really focus in on the language. And language itself is its own type of music. And when you get so many different voices and tones and um, inflections together, it's just this beautiful sort of oral sense of, of story. I will do it, Your Honor. Through rain, through sleet, through courtrooms, anything. We deliver. <laughs> Mr. Gailey. Your Honor, every one of those... When audiences come in to, to Sursa to actually see it, what they're seeing is all of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Watching actors work, they see the microphones, the scripts are in hand. So there's a, um, there's a technical aspect to that, which I know is super interesting to the people who come. But for the most part, the vast majority of the audience is listening. Yeah, And so that's the story that I want to be keyed into as the director. A good radio drama lets the audience just fill in with their imagination, right? So as I watched the live broadcast for that first time, I was sitting in the back of the theater, and uh, I always watch the audience whenever a show is, is going. And I remember looking around, and about half of the audience had their eyes closed. And I was like, that's brilliant, that's awesome, yay! Because that meant that they were sort of in this lovely world in their head. It's so much fun to, to do this on stage and then listen to the broadcast later. And sometimes I'll think, wow, we really sounded authentic. That was, that was great. Court's adjourned till tomorrow morning. The sound effects and the audience reactions and things like that, it just, wow. I didn't know we could do that. Jennifer Blackmer's intentional involvement of Ball State students has continued and over the years has led to more than 100 students participating in IPR radio dramas. I have spent the last six years of my career on campus as director of Immersive Learning, director of the Virginia Ball Center. And I believe in my core that when you throw students into a situation where they, they get to make creative choices and there's an outcome that they are actually going to share with the community and with the world, that they can do amazing things and they can surprise themselves and they can, as a group, as a collaborative group, go above and beyond.
public radio, public television being being centered on a college campus is is awesome to begin with, right? But because of your mission and because of the institution's mission, there's this wonderful synergy between the two organizations that allows students opportunities that they wouldn't normally get. The work that they're going to do when they graduate is for other people. And so why not give students the opportunity to experience what those high stakes moments are uh, throughout their time with us here? So I think it's crucial. Um, and it has provided immersive learning projects, not only my own, but also immersive learning projects across campus with an incredible partner for, for us to share the work that we do with. Jennifer's connection with her Ball State students also played a key role in a different way in the following year's radio drama and adaptation of The Gift of the Magi. And that one was um, a, a, a wonderful experience for me because I got to work with a former student of mine. Uh, Kirsten Fence authored that version and she uh, had just graduated a couple of years before and um, was sticking around Muncie and had gotten a job on campus and was still writing. And I said, so what are you gonna, what are you gonna write? And she's like, I don't know, I'm in between projects right now. And I said, well, guess what? <laughs> so I worked with her and that was gratifying. I got you a gift too. Here. You did? <laughs> Open it. <gasps> the combs! <laughs> oh. Holmes. Kirsten and I had been working together since she was a freshman, so to see this wonderful writer go from her freshman year when she's like, maybe I might want to write things, to a full-fledged professional was just superb. Another Ball State faculty member who joined the IPR radio drama alongside Jennifer Blackmer was Michael Elliott. He was the musical director for Miracle on 34th Street and has been the music man four times since then. I've never done a radio drama when I first started this, and so it was a big learning curve for me in that regards, but live theater is live theater, and so it translated very well. So yes, being live on stage is, is um, one, one of the reasons I'm in theater, because it's exhilarating, right? It's being, it's being in the moment. Um, and um, so we're in the background, uh, the musicians and, and myself were in the back behind the actors, um, paying attention to what's going on and, and trying to keep things uh, as tight as possible and getting those cues. Since the beginning, I've, I've used uh, almost exclusively Ball State uh, students as musicians from the School of Music and the Theater and Dance. The role of musical director involves choosing and arranging the music the audience will hear including an opening piece and lots of short musical transitions within the show that really set the mood. When I first started, instead of doing original music, I decided to, to work with Christmas carols um, and uh, make arrangements of those for the, uh, for the group. And I've used various groups throughout the years from um, a small jazz combo to a, a trio of string and piano and, and sax to a double mix quartet of voices. So it's been a lot of fun. 
So we look at the transitions and where they where they need to be. I look at then what's going on in the script. Is the scene you know basically we'll say happy or sad or or uh, pensive. From there, um, I try to find the music that would be best appropriate for that transition. Moving into sometimes it's one thing into another, so we go from one mood into another and make an arrangement to help fit that short uh, short time. I say short time because most of those transitions are just Mr. seconds. But Mr. Gailey. Look at these newspapers, Chris. The music really helps uh, to give the texture to the story. Uh, it gives it momentum. It helps um, just like a soundtrack for a film, right? Um, those dramatic moments wouldn't feel as dramatic without the right underscore um, to help lay a foundation and, and weave a fabric of, of either tension or tenderness um, that helps enhance that moment for the listener, whether it's conscious or not. Um, those, those things uh, are really, really help to, to shape that story, to help tell the story um, and evoke the emotion uh, of a particular moment. And buy another coal scuttle before you dot another I, Bob Cratchit. Yes, yes I will, sir, yes, yes. There's another auditory element to these radio dramas that help tell the story, the sound effects. Now, the word you're going to hear for this is Foley, a term that's been part of the film industry lingo for decades. Foley is named after Jack Foley, who pioneered the art of adding footsteps and other sound effects to Hollywood films almost a century ago. The medium of radio, there's no visual, um, and so the Foley artist is there to provide um, that context um, for uh, the audience and to be able to help them create the, the world, the vision in their head. Remember me, Ebenezer. Marley! And so that's, that's always fun to see them work and to work in collaboration with them, whether it's being underneath those sounds and adding, adding that, those layers of texture or helping to create that world through um, other sounds with the instruments. For the IPR radio dramas, the Foley artist role was first filled by TCOM professors. Dr. Joe Mashevitz for War of the Worlds and then Tim Underhill for A Christmas Carol. Marcus Jackman helped with Foley the following year then came Miracle on 34th Street, with Jennifer Blackmer directing and becoming part of the Foley Fun. The first year, we worked with a student to create the Foley. It was Nick Merling, who was a double major in theater and telecommunications. And so he jumped at the chance to do this because he was super excited about a lot of the same stuff that I was from a language perspective. He's like, all right, how can we tell the story using sound effects? And it was nothing that either he had done or I had done before. Now bring them all in or be fined for contempt of court. So we were together to experiment. <laughs> I remember uh, this one afternoon, we gathered just a bunch of stuff into a room and sat there together making noise. In 2015, the radio drama revisited A Christmas Carol, and it marked another big change for this holiday tradition. Remember what has passed between us, Ebenezer Scrooge. A professional Foley artist from Hollywood took the IPR radio drama to a whole new level. Her name, Vanessa Ahmed. Foley, of course, the replacement of footsteps, props, and cloth in sync to picture for film and television is something that I started in 1980 back on the show Dallas on TV. And then it progressed into a lot of film. 
Um, and so what happened was when I started getting interested in academia and teaching Foley and ADR to film students, uh, I started finding all sorts of ways of connecting practice with theory as a professional and as a, a scholar. Vanessa came to Ball State as the endowed chair of telecommunications in 2014. And by the following December, she was on stage with the IPR event, lending her expertise and her unique approach to the radio drama. Good night, sir, and Merry Christmas. Bah. Merry Christmas. Bah. A Christmas Carol. We did it at Sursa Hall, which is this beautiful tuned acoustical stage in a wonderful theater and um, the, the music department uses it, so it was a wonderful room to work in. And I had a table and I had these microphones, one for my feet and one for any prop sounds. So it was really fun to work on such a beautiful stage, in such a beautiful room, with such a great director, and later with Matt Reeder, um, who's also brilliantly gifted, um, and with these wonderful actors. And now to Mr. Scrooge. I'm bringing my sense of cinema and my experience as somebody who's done it for film to the sound I would make for the radio plays. So rather than just thinking about a sound, I'm thinking about creating environment and story and enhancing character the way that we would in film. So for example, somebody's taking a deep breath or um, somebody gives somebody a kiss the, which we we in Foley typically just kiss our hands that's a trade secret so what I'm imagining is that people are in their living rooms and or in their kitchen or on their iPhone or wherever they are listening to this and they're getting a sense of the subtleties that bring the character and the environment to life and I think this is what happens when you come from film doing sound. You think about all these subtle touches that bring life to it, bring character to it, bring environment to it, and make it feel more alive, more, there's a term, haptic, more like you're actually there experiencing it. The Foley artist has to be careful not to draw attention away from the actors and the story. But sometimes there were exceptions. <laughs> There would be moments where the actors had a, a breath, a space where I could kind of do something funny and the audience could actually see these crazy things I would be doing. So I actually got to be part of the acting performance as well. But that's just the ham and me, you know. It's just been incredibly fun because I would be A, with my theater peeps, which is my roots, that's where I come from, B, doing movie sound types of sound, but C, doing it live in person, for an audience, and on the radio. It's been kind of an interesting hybrid. Maybe we can listen to Christmas carols. <laughs> we should be listening to the news. Two further attacks have taken place. 2016 brought a new interpretation of It's a Wonderful Life and a new face to the production. Jennifer Blackmer stepped out of the director role and one of her colleagues from the Ball State Theater Department, Matt Reeder, stepped in. She said that she had a really interesting opportunity with Indiana Public Radio um, to direct a radio play. Uh, and as a theater director, that was instantly intriguing to me uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, not least of which is it's something that I'd not done ever before. Um, and it sounded like a really 
interesting uh, creative challenge uh, to undertake in a very kind of digital age. So I was super interested in that um, and pretty much started there. George, is that you out there? Oh, uh, hello, Mary. One of the things that was so intriguing to me about the idea of the radio show is that you essentially experience this play through one sense, and that's through listening. And so from the beginning, I had to approach uh, the, the play through the idea of what we hear. Hey, Tully, Eustace, look, look at the newspaper. Commander Harry Bailey decorated by the president. Now that's my kid brother. Even in the audition process, I remember um, telling an actor, I'm actually going to turn away because I'm getting a lot of information from you visually and I want to see what I can get from you if I turn and just hear the way you speak. In doing that, we were able to uh, cast these plays in ways that doesn't, don't necessarily rely on verisimilitude, like, you know, we can have younger people playing older people, old, older people playing younger people, simply because of the way their voice sounds um, when there's not an actual body attached to it. Uh, that process of auditioning and listening specifically to the way an actor interacts with the words and nothing else was a really interesting challenge. For the actors in the room, I'm the first iteration of an audience that they have. Um, and so it's my job to always step in, help shape, listen to things, change for clarity, shift for clarity, step out, listen to it, try to put on, uh, you know, play the character of someone who has not heard this before, see if that information processes, and then step back in and give an, a, an, ac an actor adjustment based on that. Um, and so most of the time I'm simply directing for the way that I would want a story to sound if I was sitting in the audience listening to it for the first time. Part of the fun of attending an IPR radio drama at Sursa Hall is getting to hear from some of the people involved in the production before the radio broadcast begins. Matt Reeder wants the live audience to see that they actually have a role in the show. And so I often talked to the, to the live audiences that attended um, as if they were part of the show rather than uh, uh, just being passive observers of the show that they had a backstage glimpse of the show that was happening and they had a role because they had to applaud and they had to react and they were actually characters and there's an applause sign that tells them when to applaud and when they, they get to see the countdown clock and all of that. So we're actually not performing it for them, we're performing it with them. And they are uh, in, uh, in essence performing it for the, the, the audience that sits at home and listens on the radio. Nancy Carlson has transitioned from helping produce the first two radio dramas to being a devoted audience member. We not only listen, we attend the holiday radio drama. That's one of our favorite tickets of the year. It's in Sursa Hall now, or has been in the past, and that's a beautiful acoustic place to have a radio drama. And we look forward to going in and getting our seats and holding our breath and not sneezing and watching the timer and watching the applause light. It's really an event for us every year. Up to this point, the IPR holiday radio dramas had all been productions of well-known, well-loved stories, including the 2014 adaptation of The Gift of the Magi. But in 2017, all of that was about to change. Here's Matt Reeder again. I think there's far too many interesting, urgent stories to be told uh, in our world right now to only rely on 
a handful of stories that everybody knows. Here's Jennifer Blackmer. Because I'm a playwright and because I am also, as a theater artist, looking for as many opportunities as I can to bring new stories into the world, um, this to me was a, a, a perfect opportunity to do that. And Tom Horan, my colleague and friend, had just joined our faculty that year and he's a playwriting instructor, as am I. Angie Rapp is the marketing manager for Indiana Public Radio and has been the producer for every IPR radio drama since 2014. Jennifer went to Angie and asked, how do you feel about doing something new this year? She's like, sure, why not? I, one of the great things about being involved in this project is that everybody at IPR is so generous and so willing <laughs> to go along with, you know, whatever Jen's crazy idea is of the moment. So I approached Tom and I had had an idea for uh, a few years to explore this sort of mythical moment that I had known about in World War One, where you know the guns stopped and um, the the warring sides celebrated Christmas together. And it's you know nobody exactly knows if it happened. It's apocryphal. There are many many stories that that suggest that it did. And so. Tom and I sat down and had a conversation and I said, you know, this is this is an opportunity for you to write something new and me to do something new and us to bring a new story into the world and that was how it began. Tom Horan's new story became the world premiere of A Christmas Truce. Every year I've tried to introduce a new challenge, a good challenge that will build on some of the things we've already done, right? So I, I don't ever want it to be um, just sort of, you know, recreating this thing again because, you know, every time you do a piece, it's new. But I'm also very um, invested in this as a program for IPR, which is um, just something I care so very much about. And it's kind of my way of giving back to uh, public radio, which has just meant so much to me my entire life. So I love that it has, you know, sort of come to this sort of collaborative thing that I can do where I can bring the art form that I love and the work that I'm good at to um, something that I love so much. Michael Kleber played a British soldier in A Christmas Truce. What about the Germans? But the following year, he tried his hand at writing an original script for the 2018 radio drama, A Few Houses Down. At the end of the broadcast the previous year, I approached Jen Blackmer and I said, would it be all right if I tried my hand at one of these things? And she said, sure. So I immediately went home and wrote down some ideas and promptly forgot about the whole thing. Then over the summer, I thought, oh my gosh, they're expecting me to write this. So I really got down to it over the summer, and then uh, I really put the nose to the grindstone in October and uh, wrapped it up. And then I turned it over to Jen, and she turned it over to Matt Reeder, and uh, they they found some things that needed fixing, but it was, it was nothing that tore my heart out, like, oh, they can't do that to my baby. So I just, yeah, sure, I'll gladly make those revisions. And I made them, and then I sat in on a couple of rehearsals and listened to people reading my words, which was one of the most surreal things I've ever sat through in my life.
And then there was the performance. I felt everybody did a wonderful job with it. And not only would I do it again, I am. Uh, this is my fall break week from Ivy Tech. So I've had the whole week off. So I've been working on the play steadily over this week. And it's called A Chris Mystery. And it involves a jewel theft. And that's all I'll say. I, I don't know if they're going to choose it. But yeah, I loved it. As Grandpa Johnston would have said, God bless us all, everyone. It was just, wow, that was, that was really just, it was warm and fun, and that was just wonderful. That was all the reward I needed was just getting that feeling. The 2019 IPR radio drama featured yet another local playwright, Jennifer Blackmer's Ball State colleague, David Taylor Little. The conversation came up as they were celebrating an opening night at the theater department. And Jen said, oh, well, I, you know, I, I, I helped produce the, the radio drama here at Ball State and at IPR. You should get involved. And I said, that would be great. And at that point, she was kind of like, I'm going to be super busy. Maybe we can write it together. And I said, great. And I, I, I'm more and more interested in writing and like have been getting more interested in writing. And I thought this will be a great opportunity for me to work with somebody who's a professional playwright and get some tips and, um, you know, learn from her in the process. And then she got so busy, she couldn't write it. So I ended up writing the whole thing. David wrote a story called Christmas Gifts combining two short stories by O. Henry. He was faced with a short turnaround time and ended up writing the script, all 60 pages worth, in about three weeks. He sat down with Matt Reeder to do auditions before the script was even complete. So Matt was then able to turn to me in the room and be like, okay, what are you thinking about for this? Is this person going to work for that role that's not done yet? We kind of tag-teamed the auditions in that way. The thing that I loved about rehearsal, it was really, really fun for me to sit in the room as a playwright because I've there's plenty of times where I've been in the room as a director with the playwright sitting beside me, but it was great to be able to turn to Matt and say, yeah, that wasn't my intention there, or have him say to me, can we cut these few lines, or can you write? There was one scene that we completely rewrote after we had started because it just wasn't working right uh, in the Gifts of the Magi story. Um, and so I really liked that relationship. Here's Matt Reeder again. I mean, there's, there's a, a symbiosis that happens with that, you know. Um, and again, that kind of collaboration is not anything I would ever I would ever dream of turning away. It's like we're all we're all there in the in the same room trying to do the same thing, pushing towards the same goal, just using different tools to get there. For David, watching his work being performed on stage was a special experience. But he also loved that family and friends could tune in online from, well, anywhere. I'm a live theater person, so I'm not used to radio, television, those kinds of things, and the idea of all of these things being heard in the room that I was sitting in, but also by people, like like I said, all over the country, but primarily in Indiana, that was really special for me too. It made me that much more excited about pursuing playwriting a lot more. I mean, I've already thought about like, 
you know, if and or when the time comes, like what would that next piece be? This last one was an adaptation of two O. Henry stories. Um, and I think that was a really good stepping stone for me in terms of the stories were done. Like I just had to create my version of those stories but I would like to create something that's maybe more original and, and from my heart and, you know, I don't know what that is yet, um, but uh, yeah, definitely, I, I mean, I would want to participate again in the future. Here's Jennifer Blackmer again. So it's never actually worked out in my own workload for me to actually write something for this, um, but I, I wanna do it, I'm gonna do it. So here I am saying it on film, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> so that's one thing I would love to, to be able to do is write something myself and then give it to somebody else and have somebody else direct it. The fact that like IPR is at Ball State and can like have that connection with the theater department means that you've got amazing playwrights in the city of Muncie who can write something unique, as well as, uh, you know, uh, students who've written things um, and community folks who live here who have written things and participated. It is exciting to have people from the community participating and have a mix of professionals and non-professionals all producing this thing that at the end um, is something to be really proud of. So why does the radio drama, a form of storytelling from decades past, keep people coming back year after year as audience members and those involved in the production? Radio is often called theater of the mind. And I think um, the reason for that is when you listen to something on the radio where you're not given the visuals, you create the visuals in your mind listen to a really well done radio drama, close your eyes, and you, you form those pictures. When we're in our mother's wombs, sound lets us know there's something out there that's bigger than us, something beyond what I can reach, something beyond what I can see, actually. I think that what gives the radio drama its staying power is that it is such a classic form of storytelling, even though we have you know, IMAX theaters with these over-the-top productions that are very beautiful, but we'll still all go to see plays, which are a more traditional or simplified form of storytelling. There's something really comforting about things that remain consistent over the years. There's something very comforting and secure and delightful about shutting off all of the stimulation and all of the distraction and being still and listening to a story, the way that we all grew up with our parents reading to us. It goes back to me, you know, listening with my parents to Prairie Home Companion that led me uh, to really enjoy the medium of that and the storytelling. So yeah, I think it's the imagination um, that allows the audience to become, even through a, speak, you know, a speaker, you're not there, but it draws you in in a way like a good book might. When I read The Three Musketeers or, or Kidnapped, I picture what the bad guy looks like, what the hero looks like, and radio does the same thing. The voices are the ones that bring forward the, the personalities and the action. So radio of the mind or theater of the mind is an exercise of your creativity. When storytelling began, to craft an identity for a people group, it began around a campfire together. 
It wasn't performed at a distance. It was something we did together. This is who we are. This is, the, this is how the human being is made, I believe. We need to participate ourselves. Let me into creating this story with you. Let me engage myself in filling out the scene in my mind's eye. Let me be a part of this. My goal for all of these has always been to form a community and to have this experience be a celebration. Having fun with it and also understanding the point of what you're doing and the fact that you're doing this not only as a community but for the community, right? The goal is always to empower a group of people to tell a lovely story. And I think when, uh, when that is your goal, then it can't help but be uh, a warm and wonderful experience, not only for the people doing it, but also for the audience. I think it's something we, we need. Anything that brings us together under the, the auspices of a story, and anything that gets us to quiet down, to be near people uh, that we love, uh, to share something as a community uh, and to engage our imaginations uh, in a slowdown. To have a live radio drama in a small community like Muncie that's broadcast to a wide like number of people all over Indiana, I think that's really special and unique. There's community actors, there's Ball State students, there's Ball State professors, there's Ball State staff. It, it's just wonderful to be able to put something together um, so focused with talented people um, to create that moment, that hour-long moment um, for the community to enjoy. It's just a lot of fun, it's exhilarating, it's gratifying. That time of year, regardless of what you're doing, is always stressful, and most of that we just put on ourselves, right? Once we get our ensemble together, and once we get the schedule together, and once we begin, then it's like a reminder to me of why I do what I do in the first place, right? We tell stories to celebrate, and this is a wonderful time of year to celebrate, and so I use that as a chance to momentarily, I guess, forget about all the stuff I do, forget about the finals I have to grade and the gifts I have to buy and the stuff I have to do. And then when it all happens in that moment of performance, it's just joy. And there's something about the slowness of the, of the radio drama that is really comforting. The magic of live performance is everyone in that room, from the audience, to the actors, to the technicians, to the crew. We all have a plan, but we never know how that plan's gonna go. You know, when we finish out at you know, nine o'clock or whatever, and it actually went really well, that sense of relief, and having accomplished something really special together, that's something that we can't get anywhere else. I couldn't agree more. I love seeing the production come together live on stage. It's a tradition we look forward to continuing next holiday season. For all of us at Indiana Public Radio and Ball State PBS, thanks for joining us to celebrate the IPR radio drama. From our family to yours, happy holidays and good night.
Comfort and Joy, an IPR radio drama retrospective, was produced and directed by Paul Brown. Executive producers Lori Georgie and Angie Rapp. Hosted by Michelle Kinsey. Edited by Paul Brown. Special thanks to Vanessa Ahmed, Jennifer Blackmer, Brian Boswell, Nancy Carlson, Michael Elliott, Chris Fluke, Marcus Jackman, Michael Kleberg, David Taylor Little, and Matthew Reeder. This broadcast has been a copyrighted production of Indiana Public Radio and Ball State University.